Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. This is the final word. Season 7, Episode 5, I think, coming to you from across the globe. Adam Collins at the far end of the line. Jeff Lemon at this end. And uh, there's no point starting with anything else. We have to start where we have to start. Sean Edward Marsh. (laughs) His highest career first-class score. 214 he made against Victoria in a crushing innings victory. His first career double hundred in FC cricket. It went past his previous best, the 182 that he made in that test match against the West Indies in Hobart Mm. when he had a partnership with Adam Voges and very nearly broke the, uh, the record for the highest ever partnership in Test Cricket, I think it was. Maybe it was the highest Australian partnership. They, they didn't quite get past the Bradman one. Adam Voges is the, uh, the coach of Western Australia now. He said that Marsh's double century was as good as he had ever seen um, from, from Sean Marsh. And how about this for an opening paragraph on an article on uh, the, the highly impartial cricket.com.au website. Fresh off a career best 214 in the Marsh Sheffield Shield. Yes, thanks to its being <laughs> renamed. Veteran batsman Sean Marsh has elevated himself back into the conversation for selection in Australia's test team. He has never left the conversation for selection in Australia's test team. He's always in that conversation for good or ill. But uh, what a what a beautiful, what a what a masterful stroke from a man with a a consummate sense of comedic timing. That that uh, at at a point where he broke his arm after the World Cup, he was supposed to be done in Australian colours again. But what are the odds? 
pretty good, I'd say, that we'll see him, Adam, uh, lining up in Brisbane in a test match. Yeah, I think he's uh, back in the conversation. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, well, look, uh, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I heard Justin Langer interviewed on, on Jared Waitley's show a couple of days ago, and he kind of grouped Shaw Marsh with Tom Cooper as sort of outside picks, but that can't be the case. I mean, the reality is that um, Marsh has made a, a significant score against a formidable Victorian attack um, at point in the Shield season which historically has given you an opportunity to play the first test. If you make runs early in the year it has a greater bearing on whether you play for Australia or not than if you make runs at the end of the year. It's always the way. So um, if this is the trial period, uh, no better time for him to post a massive total. And as you say, he's probably about 42 now and that's great. Uh, you know, He's going to be as old as Colin Cowdery, I'm sure when he plays his final test match. Um, but um, He'll be as old as Wilfred Rhodes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He'll be exactly. 52. But the, the, the broken arm when he um, copped that whack before the, the South Africa game during the World Cup, we did think that was it for him. Uh, but it was it was the, it was naive. I mean, you've written a poem about the fact that you thought he would be back in time for the Edgebaston Test match, and people thought that was over the top. But the reality is, is that um, another Sean coming, a Sean Marsh coming. That doesn't sound quite right, does it? Shaw Marsh coming again. <laughs> that doesn't sound right either. Uh, would would be a would be a uh, you know a wonderful way for us to start the summer in terms of the amount of attention oh. we'll be able to pay to it. It would be it would be so much fun. I'm I'm I've completely changed position now. I'm behind it. Let's have it. Let's have, let's <laughs> let's keep the story going. It's yeah. a beautiful tale. It's a tale of perseverance. But fancy putting him with Tom Cooper. Like honestly, you could put Justin Langer in a room blindfolded with Sean Marsh and Tom Cooper standing in front of him, and just he'd just have to point. He would get Sean Marsh a hundred times out of a hundred. He would just know. There is like fancy saying that he would pick Tom Cooper ahead of Sean Marsh. It is never going. Yeah, I think what he was trying to sort of illustrate was that there there are players who are kind of not quite in the conversation who are making mm. themselves part of it again. I guess that was the kind of the, the point that Langer was making. But but still, yeah. you're spot on that Marsh is front and centre. And, and it's not for nothing that there aren't a lot of players around the country who are competing for a similar spot in the batting order. I mean, Hanscom hasn't really made runs as yet, for example. Um, he's a player who, you know, might think that he has an opportunity to elevate himself back up given there's this long run into the first test match. He wasn't that far away last summer. Of course, he was in the test squad uh, when Australia played at the end of the summer. I suppose Labuschagne made an unbeaten 72. But, I mean, Alex Carey, a double fail. He made 100 at the junction oval on the freeway. But two failures against Queensland. Travis Head, double failure against Queensland as well. They're two players who are being discussed in that context. So, yeah, I mean, maybe the stars will align for Sean Marsh. And if they did, yeah, well, well, we'll enjoy it, put it that way. There's a, there's a vacant Marsh spot in in the eleven. Here, yeah, of course, Mitch, Mitch as well. Yeah, the wall and broke yeah. his hand, and there's you know there's there's a Marsh vacancy. And if you want to argue it out with Justin Langer as well, listeners, you can you can throw your hat in the ring. Um, Cricket Australia put the national selectors job up on Seek.com. Um, you, you you can well, you can chuck in an application. I'm I think I might do it myself. I reckon I might yeah. give it a tilt because they always pick an ex cricketer. But I think we can point at some pretty ordinary decisions and, and uh, media appearances and so on made by a lot of ex-cricketers over the years. Why not freshen it up? Give, a, <laughs> give, give an outside voice a go. And, and I think I'd work really well with JL. I think me and JL would, would gel, you know. We've, we've got a natural vibe. We've got a, we've got, you know, there's, there's just a compatibility there. I think we haven't exchanged a lot of words, but I feel like we'd get along. Yeah, the, the, um, the, the and, way, and the way that he looks at you, made in heaven. the way that Langer looks mm. at you, it, it doesn't sort of suggest it to be too good a working relationship unless it's sort of like in the box 
boxing ring and you take a sort of out there but you know um, I saw it'd, it'd, they'd be short selection meetings yeah. we'd get our points across um, <laughs> uh, you know and then and as long as as long as Trevor Holmes is there to, to keep the peace so I think it could be really productive yeah well as um, Nick Tuvey said on Twitter I mean Shane Warne's clearly interested in it uh, he's, he's, as, as he pointed out he's, he's named another phantom team it seems like that's what that's what Warnie does these days he just runs out and names names uh, a side at every available opportunity probably not really his fault when you consider that he's, he's I'm sure he's being asked by um, those that run his newspaper column to do precisely that but still um, mm. uh, yeah as as, um, as Gaspanic replied on Twitter um, Warnie's like I was when I was 12 years old picking phantom teams and designing kits which I thought was about <laughs> about right so yeah maybe maybe Shane remember in the Warner in the Warner Festo I think from memory he had Mark War as the chief selector didn't he so and Wars, of course, had his... Yeah, well, that worked well. Yeah. Feels like a long time ago since... Tell, tell Xavier Doherty to toss it up, <laughs> says Mark Moore, who picked him. Yeah, um, simpler times. Nonetheless, I will say that Shane Warne's fave, Riley Meredith, bowled beautifully in the Sheffield Shield game. New South Wales, Tassie, I was up there watching a couple of days of that in Sydney at Drummoin, lovely place to watch cricket. And look, Tassie got pretty comprehensively beaten thanks to a... Steve Smith 100 and a Moses Enriquez 100 and a, and a uh, Mitchell Stark 10 for in the match. But Riley Meredith bowled beautifully, got rid of Smith, got rid of, uh, got rid of Enriquez. He had a, his first first-class five for on the third day of that match, I think. Yep. Got rid of the two overnight century-making batsmen, um, ran through Peter Neville for a first-ball duck, picked up a couple more on the streak, um, looked quick, looked... Um, looked impressive, so you know Shane Warne was on it as as always, finger on the pulse. Uh, other, well, yeah, there, there's a few there's a, a few notable performances there, isn't there? Uh, Smith making a hundred after a couple of low scores to be expected. Um, Wade. 20 and 40 I've talked about those middle order players he's yet to really I guess Wade has to play doesn't he He, he's deserved it he made 100 in the most recent test match so there's no point to really speculate over his position a double failure for Tim Payne but looking at the bowling uh, Mitchell Stark 5 for 40 and 5 for 20 Bowled a lot of overs. Um, obviously, I didn't get a chance to see him in the flesh, but I saw some highlights. Seemed to have that ball moving late, which we haven't seen for a pretty long time. So uh, not a bad moment to pick for him to find some form. I actually had a quick chat to Steve Smith after day three of that game, and we can drop a bit of that in. The first thing I asked him about was Mitchell Stark's bowling. Just looked really his best, like when he's coming around the wicket to the right-handers and reversing it away. And, you know, that's like big, big Mitchell Stark. certainly is. Um, I think he... He, he struggled a little bit last week getting some rhythm um, just coming back um, after bowling with a Dukes ball bowling with a Kookaburra for the first time um, sort of had to find his groove again um, and he, he said that to me and I could see the net we had two days before the game um, I was facing him in the nets and, it, and things didn't feel quite right and then when I left I was watching him and I could just see a difference um, I could actually see it in his run up and it just looked like he, something clicked and he found that rhythm and since then um, you know he's just been bowling really nicely and um, you know, he's got a good chance to get 10 for the game first thing in the morning and uh, yeah he's bowled, bowled beautifully this game and the Ashes must have been Kind of emotionally exhausting. It seemed like you were like you put yourself through the ringer to produce the results you did. Yeah, emotionally, physically, mentally, all of the above. Um, I was pretty knackered by the end of it. So um, you know, I worked pretty hard. I spent a lot of time out in the middle. Um, I didn't have a great deal of time off the field, if if that sort of makes sense. So um, 
yeah, it was uh, a long campaign with the World Cup as well, so pretty knackered. It was good to have a couple of weeks off and, and then get back playing for New South Wales, so all smooth rolling from here. Yeah, interesting there from Smith when you consider that uh, where he was at the end of the previous Ashes cycle, 17-18, and he, he also said he was exhausted then, but he but it took him. I guess he wasn't as aware of the, the consequences, uh, and, and we saw what, what happened in South Africa thereafter, not to directly link the two, but I think it was all related, and of course you document that pretty well in your book, Jeff, but uh, yeah, Smith getting a score in the first couple of rounds, uh, not not exactly a relief, that's, that's overstating it, but to get one score just means he knows he's in decent nick coming into the, the chunky part of the summer as far as Australian commitments are concerned. Um, he'll surely bat number four in that first test with Labashane batting three. I, I can't imagine a scenario where that's not how they go in, which means can Kawaja, you know, beat out Marcus Harris to the opener spot? Uh, Harris made 69 uh, last week, and I think he made a ton the week before, didn't he, at the junction over? He made a so, big hundred the week before. Yeah, so I suppose he's, he's making runs again. You know, it, I, I hate to keep emphasising this point, but this is the only part of the Shield season that matters uh, when it comes to national selection. We've seen repeatedly players, uh, you know, make truckloads of runs when no one's watching in March and it doesn't seem to count for much. But if you make runs here, it's worth double. Yeah, well, Warner made a really good 100 at the Gabba in the previous round of games and it, it was actually really fun innings. You know, a lot through the offside, looked really controlled. But he also, his shot to get out in the Tasmania game in the first innings there, I think it was, was, was just awful. It was like real proper filth, you know, awful wide ball that he... Had no business going anywhere near, and then he got out in the one day game as well a couple of days ago to a real shocker again, trying to trying to pull do that sort of flip pull shot that he plays against a ball that was nowhere near short enough. So, um, and those were both for for pretty much bugger all single figure scores. So he's he's got that one hundred and sort of got the monkey off his back there, but he's still getting out to some pretty ordinary shots early in the innings. So that's interesting there. Uh, Michael Nisa picked up a stack of wickets there as well, another five for uh, yeah. And I think watching Mitch Stark bowl in that. Tassie game, it's the first time I've seen him look really like himself. You know, he was bowling that left arm around the wicket line where he reverses it away from the right-hander mm-hmm. and, and got, took the outside edge at one point, got a wicket that way and just looked really good, looked properly himself again. I wonder what will happen with Nisa. Um, we spent a lot of time during the English summer talking about his fortunes and he didn't get an opportunity in England. But if they go in with the, you know, the squad chat and you know I expect they will Nisa, Jai Richardson took uh, 3 for 58 and 3 for 40 everyone who saw him bowl against Victoria says he's kind of back in town as well Pattinson picked up four. Siddle was economical on his return to first-class cricket after that hip flexor injury. So they've got plenty of options with the ball. It's just a matter of how they set up with the bat. Will Pekofsky uh, made 64 with Langer watching him. Uh, Langer was very impressed by all reports. Uh, that backs up, of course, the century he made uh, in the first round too. Uh, Marcus Stoinis made a another half century, which is just worth noting, considering he's out of the Australian white ball team at the moment. Um, it's a pretty good response. Took three wickets in the second innings against Victoria, but a couple of half centuries to start his season with the bat. Um, not a bad response after being jettisoned from the T20 side. You would have thought a year ago that he'd be one of the first picks in Australia's T20 setup when you think that they're only a year away from the next global tournament but yeah I don't think it's completely outside the realms of possibility that Stornis will will eventually find a way to get into the test side only on the basis that they do like to have an all-rounder from a seeming all-rounder from time mm. to time and um, while Mitchell Marsh is currently injured it's not completely outside the realms of possibility that Stornis could be asked to do that role if they did want to set up with five bowlers rather than four at the start of the summer. 
well, he might be better off in the test side given that through the World Cup he kept struggling to actually get going at the start of an yeah. innings. He, he wasn't bad at, at facing out 30 or 40 balls and, and sticking around, but he wasn't very good at turning the strike over. So maybe he'd be better suited <laughs> to red ball cricket at the moment. Well, and I also wonder whether Nisa might be considered for such a role as well. We know Nisa's record um, with the bat at shield level is pretty strong. Uh, I think you'd call him an all-rounder. Yeah. You'd just about call him an all-rounder at first-class level. So if they want to tighten up that way, of course, James Pattinson as a bit of a swingman too, given that we know he can bat. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a different kind of conversation, I suppose, around the test line up to what it normally is. Of course, they've got a fair bit of cricket to come until the first test at Brisbane on the 23rd, I think it is, of maybe the 21st, 21st maybe of, um, of November. There's the better part of a month between now and then. So I'm sure that the calculations will change. But who knows, by that stage, Jeff, you might be the national selector. So I, I, well, I strongly urge you to uh, get that application in uh, on seek.com or whatever it is and, um, and make your case because I think I'd, uh, I'd, enjoy, I'd enjoy that an awful lot. And back my campaign, people. You know, let's let's get a bit of a movement happening online. I'm sure someone can come up with a sweet hashtag, and you know, we'll, let's put the pressure on. We want a people's voice. We want a people's vote. Oh God! Um, I, I want to <laughs> represent the people in in the halls of power. Um, and and there are decisions that have to be made. There are hard calls that have to be made. Um, later in the later in the show today, we're we're talking to Tanya Aldred about climate change policy in cricket, and, and that's going to be a, the conversation we have in the second half. But as soon as you said so saying people's vote my mind went back to the people's assembly the citizens assembly sorry that we announced in the 2000 and oh gosh 2010 federal election i think it was which was meant to be our um, innovative solution to the climate change i thought impasse. you meant you and me i was like i don't think no. when did you and i it wasn't you and i it was uh, it was the election i was working on at the time but it's fair to say that didn't work out so well but yeah even so people power is a real <laughs> thing so get, get on the streets and campaign for jeff lemon to be the national selector you couldn't do much worse that's right that's not fair either that's though right. I, I feel like I feel bad getting it stuck into the selectors. Dan Brady wrote a great piece with Trevor Hones a couple of weeks ago. Like, fair play to those guys. I mean, we they, they have copped a lot of grief um, from, mm. on this show and other places, but they, they did get the ball very close to the pin in that Ashes series. That took a lot of preparation. So you'd be coming in at a they good did, time. They did with the bowling. They didn't. They made an absolute hash of picking their batsmen, um, you know, and, and what there you were pick, a few but, very obvious mistakes uh, but, I mean, there. Well, perhaps, um, you know, but in terms of the... Uh, the, the way they, they set up, I, I don't think that you could say that a player like Matthew Wade would have been even in the frame a year earlier and he managed to find mm. his way in and make a couple of centuries and I know yep. they, they didn't they didn't exactly nail the opener position, they, they went through a couple there, didn't quite work and obviously Warner had a series that, that you know, it, it was almost it, you, it's scarcely believable how bad a series that Warner had, but the, the real um, the real magic, I think, was the way they managed to assemble that bowling attack, and who were consistently able to take twenty wickets, and you know credit to them. Uh, so yes, if you do get in there, Jeff, it'll be the right time. You can you can uh, add a bit of um, some some fresh legs in an already successful team. That's right. That? I, you know, I I just feel like I'd be able to at least um, speak in a relatively coherent way in a press conference about why decisions had been made, rather than just you know sort of saying, oh well, um, you know, this guy averages slightly more than this guy. Remember, it was it Rod Marsh with the um, with the Usman Khawaja averages like point one five more than uh, Michael Klinger at yeah. first class level, and that's why we picked him. No, that's like, a long time ago. I don't ago. think that's why you picked him. Like, if you want to defend your decision, fine, but you. you can't just make stuff up on the spot. Anyway, um, the Jackson Bear, the Jackson Bear batting average. Remember the that yeah, the reason he got left. Right. I can't remember who was being left out for at the time, but he had a, had an uh, inferior. Joe ba- Manny. Jo- not oh, 
how many how many dudes you know roll like this? Not many. Not Joe many. Um, many. Yeah. How many Joe dudes many, you know got uh, the skills? Skull, rock a slow ass pitch. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've done that. I don't know anybody. <laughs> um, yeah. So Jack Bird, a career number eleven, wasn't good enough with the bat. That was a <laughs> that was a Rod Marshism. The aforementioned Mark was saying on live TV that Xavier Doherty should toss the ball up when he'd never tossed the ball up in his entire career. You know, there's there's been a pattern of like not great selectors who've got paid their 200 grand a year or whatever it is to, you know, sit around and, I don't know, read the Greyhound results in the paper or whatever it is that they yeah. do with their time. So you couldn't do any worse anyway. But one selection decision they have made, Chris Lynn out of the T20 team, he's a bit shitty about it because as, as keeps happening, and this is another selection issue, they don't call players who've been left out even with the, the obvious few who could expect to be put in and I think like it's not that hard they keep saying millennials are afraid of making phone calls but it's always these you know blokes in the 70 plus bracket who can't get <laughs> in the blower to tell a player when they've been punted I'd make those calls people Australia, I will make those calls. If you get me that selector's job, I will make those calls. I'll <laughs> ring everybody. I'll ring everyone who's not picked. I'll ring all the Agar brothers. I'll, I'll, ring, I'll ring all the Selwood brothers. I don't mind. I'll ring everybody and I'll let them know that they're not in because it's the least you can do. It's basic courtesy. And courtesy is, you know, manners. This is how, this is how strength in community is built through mutual respect. But so I get, that's uh, a key plank of but, my platform. But the, but the counterpoint on Lynn specifically was that did he deserve to... I mean, it's quite a funny, isn't it? Did he, did, did he reach the threshold of deserving a phone call given that he wasn't in the T20 side when Australia last played given that he'd been already dropped so he wasn't like being left out as such he was being overlooked as mm. he had been in the previous series so on that basis would who, who, who qualifies for a phone call who doesn't that's the politics of this isn't it is that um, I'd give, give Lena a phone call give Dan Christian a phone call he's <laughs> nice I like him um, give, give Xavier Doherty a phone call tell does, him he should but, toss it up a bit but does Aaron Finch get a phone call for not playing in the test side this summer um, that'd be what it's comparable no. to. Yeah, but I mean, Aaron Finch couldn't make an argument for being in your best half dozen batsman in the country in that format, and Chris Lynn probably could. It may very well be that he could, but uh, yeah, I, I see, um, I, I see Lynn's frustration. But I'm simply saying that I think the phone call thing can sometimes be a bit overblown. But I do like the fact that it's um, point one a of your of your manifesto of, of the Lemon Festo, shall we say? Get on so the blower. Get on That's the blower. I'll, I will spend. I'll spend Jeff Lemon forty percent <laughs> of my billable hours on the phone. He'll get on the blower. This is good. Yeah, this is not, good. not afraid. Like not afraid to punch your digits. <laughs> Hotline bling. Right, that'll be. <laughs> given your, given you answer about one call in ten, will it work the other way? Will you commit to answering phone calls when they come in to you? Yeah, look, I guess I have to. Um, no, I won't answer them, but I'll ring you back. So I'll always get a missed call notification, and then I'll call you back. <laughs> Don't call me; I'll call you. That's <laughs> that's the Australian select. Well, that currently is their their manifesto, so that's not working too well yeah. because they don't call you. Like, it's, you're basically getting ghosted by the selectors. You know, you think they're interested. You think there was a bit of magic between you and, and Cracker Hones. You thought there was a spark there. And then he just doesn't call. <laughs> and he just, and he leaves you unread, you know. Being gaslit. A couple of ticks, but, but he's not. No, no, yeah. Trevor Haynes has got, Trevor Haynes doesn't have read notifications on his, on his WhatsApp, I'm sure. He wouldn't want people to know when, he, when the messages are read. No, he's, he probably doesn't even, you know, probably doesn't read most of them. He just leaves them, like, unread, just looks at the preview and decides whether he can be bothered. He's like, ooh, Linny again. No, no. I wonder how big the text are on his, I wonder how big the text is on his screen on his phone, whether it's in, oh, <laughs> in gigantic, it's in, gen, it's, in, it's in old Gen X, young, um, young baby boomer font. 
That's what it should be called, it's really. In the, it's in the typewriter font. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's in like Baskerville or whatever, no, like Korean <laughs> U. Um, and it's like one letter per screen. He's got to like, he's got to read a sentence by scrolling across <laughs> all the way. The other thing that was going on today, I didn't actually see the game, but the, the Prime Minister's 11. I'm, I'm kind of hurt how this fixture has been diminished over the journey. I mean... I, I get that it's a T20 match and, and all the rest of it, but it, I, I'm glad that it's back on television. That's that's kind of a, an improvement on where it was three or four years ago. I think that I went up and covered one in about 2015 where where it wasn't even on telly, but it, it does feel as though um, it isn't quite what it used to be. I saw the Prime Minister ran out and acted as a water boy today, which... Um, I don't know about that. That's uh, uh, I, all you need to see is the screenshot of Peter Siddle's face when Scott Morrison runs up to them in the huddle. It kind of says it all, really. He was the co-captain Siddle of that side with Dan Christian. Um, they had a they had a visit to the PM's office last week. So yeah, PM's eleven. I mean, once upon a time, that was actually a fixture where the Australian side was the Australian side. It's not that long ago, really, um, when. Mm. Alan Border or Mark Taylor would captain the PM's eleven, and they'd go up to Canberra and they'd play the touring side, and it was you know an important part of the annual rhythm. But now it's just yeah. just a game that they use as a tour game for whoever's coming out to play T twenties. It was the annual moment when Mark Latham could put on his filthy polo shirt and his oversized <laughs> shorts, and you know just get around the outer and press the flesh with the people. Um, it was. It, it was something that mattered. I, I can only work on the theory that Scott Morrison, they, they said, do you want to be the water boy? And he thought they said, do you want to do some waterboarding? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Let's, Hell yeah. Uh, let's get some information out of Julian Assange. Um, but but uh, unfortunately, he misheard that there. And, and, you know, how would you feel being Dan Christian, who's been an outspoken activist for, you know, respect for Indigenous people and um, and then having to do a chummy yeah. photo op with um, the, the guy in the country who would be the leader? least interested out of anybody mm. in the 24 million i reckon in that particular cause so yeah you, com- um, you combine you, know, you combine dan christian's um you know campaigning for indigenous rights and you couple that together with peter siddle's uh, interest in making the world a better place and um I'm, I'm tipping that scott morrison couldn't have less interest in those two human beings but you know that's the way it goes the division between sport and well, politics they they can raise him to their level, perhaps. You know, you can you can the the, the rising ethical tide can lift even some very stubborn <laughs> boats. So I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Um, so so Lynn is out of that side, but Aaron Finch is leading it. Uh, the the side the squad goes: Agar, Carey, Cummins, Maxwell, McDermott, Kane Richardson, Steve Smith. Stanlake, Stark, Turner, AJ Ty, Warner, Zampa. It was interesting the arguments being made, but, you know, Justin Langer saying, um, well, obviously Lynn can't play because you've got that top order of Smith, Warner, Finch, Maxwell, where is he going to get in? I'm not entirely sold on the idea that Steve Smith has to be in Australia's T20 team. I, I think it, it feels more like he's in it because they want to make sure that he feels included in everything and, you know, every all, all the past is in the past and he's welcomed back in every single way. But it doesn't necessarily... I'll be interested to see how he goes, but he doesn't strike me as in the most essential T20 players in the country. It would surprise me if they're doing it to placate him in that way. I'm surprised if they're doing it so his feelings weren't hurt. I think that there is definitely a debate to be had as to whether Steve Smith's in the best Australian T20 side. That's that's fine. but And obviously Langer falls on, on the side of uh, believing that they want him to be the glue um, which often yeah. is needed in a T20 side, but uh, and you know he, he has been a decent argument for that. Yeah, and he and he has. I mean, uh, I was looking at his uh, IPL numbers yesterday, which were, were floating around when this argument was taking place on Twitter, and they're good without being great. 
So he, he can obviously do it. Yeah. Um, the question is whether he'll he'll still be doing it in 12 months' time. So we're in this ramp-up, aren't we, to the World T20, October 2020 uh, in Australia for the first time. Australia had never won it. Um, it's something that Langer was talking about on that aforementioned radio interview yesterday where um, he knows that this becomes a big part of his job, whereas T20 International mm. Cricket has been an afterthought for much of the last... I guess 13 or 14 years since it's been played and these global tournaments were only really the time where it was drilled down on it's different this time they've, they've got a 12 month build up quite a lot of bilateral series and look they have been ranked number two in the world they missed out on going number one by I think a hundredth of a point or whatever that means on the ICC rankings last year when we were in Zimbabwe, I think it was. So, like, they have done pretty well as a side, um, which has gone under the radar a little bit. They're nowhere near the rabble they were a few years ago at, at T20 level. So they were pulling mm. it together, especially when you've got players like AJ Ty, who've been a bit sort of mainstays now. Aaron Finch, likewise, who do so well in, in the Indian Premier League. Glenn Maxwell, who was integral in beating India in India earlier this year too. So, yeah, they've got the building blocks there and we know that Warner, as soon as he returned to the IPL this year, he was uh, the most prolific batsman in that competition. Stephen Smith, we've already talked about him, but a player of vast experience. So, they've got reasons to be cheerful, I think, leading up to this summer. I think, I guess the argument with Smith is he's got, he's prolific in the IPL in terms of volume, um, but not so much in terms of speed. You know, yeah. his strike rate's often under 120, which isn't quite enough to make you a really damaging player but I'd say the main argument for him is that Australian T20 sides especially and and one day sides as well in the last few years have struggled a lot against spin through the middle um, you know finding ways to to score particularly players new to the crease and so on and and having those those periods where they get slowed down by spin and then wickets fall and so maybe that's a key part is that he's probably the best player of spin in the country Mm. Um, well, you can remove the probably in front of that if you're talking white clothing. Um, but he's he's such a an inventive player against spin bowling that to have that one really cohesive player through the middle who could bat for 15 or 16 of the overs could make a huge difference. So we've got games on Sunday, Wednesday and Friday. They're in Adelaide. I know the last one's in Melbourne. Where's the middle one, Jeff? Adelaide somewhere in Melbourne. <laughs> It doesn't matter. You'll watch it on the TV, I'm sure. No one goes to these games. <laughs> uh, India, let's move to the subcontinent. Probably really. Sydney. Let's wrap it up. Subcontinent, um, we've got a couple of bits to get through here. India, South Africa, um, that finished as we kind of expected it would when we spoke last week. India, wrap mm-hmm. it, sweep it 3-0. They get the 120 World Test Championship points on offer. They made the better part of 500 and bowled out South Africa for 162 and 133. Rohit Sharma. 12 months ago, he was batting number six in the test side, then drops. Now he's at the top of the list, double hundred after a century last week. Rahane uh, back in the runs too. It's been a while for him. Uh, the wickets were shared around by India's formidable bowling attack in both innings. But probably the bigger news in Indian cricket this week, Jeff, is that Sarav Ganguly has formally been instated as the president of the BCCI. So the Supreme Court have formally stepped back. They were... Um, hands on the tiller there since 2017 when they decided to intervene but they're, they're now allowing um, they've allowed rather the board to be elected in, in the in the usual way and Ganguly is the boss and interesting that he immediately showed deference to Virat Kohli saying that Kohli is the most important man in Indian cricket not him and Kohli uh, this week and that was in reference to Kohli saying this week that he'd like to see 
five test venues um, in India, not the myriad that have been used. I think 18 have been used since 2000, but he wants it to be, well, it was put to him the question that should it be Calcutta, Mumbai, Chennai, Delhi and uh, Delhi rather, and Bangalore. And he, he didn't sort of question the premise of that. He kind of backed that in these bigger centres, which would mean that places like Visak and Pune and Ranchi, which hosted this series, would be sort of relegated to non-test status. So you can kind of see already a bit of, um, you know, back and forth with Ganguly. I'm sure it's going to be an interesting tenure. Yeah, it, there's a, an air of inevitability about it. You know, Sir Ganguly's been cricket royalty almost in a literal sense. The the, the prince, as he was often called, you know, has that patrician air, was sort of destined to lead the team when he did, but to take a role like this seems completely... It, it's entirely predictable. Um, I'm never entirely convinced that that's a good thing when you have these kind of preordained... Um, rises to power as it were and is is that person actually going to be the best person to do that job um and to address the massive systemic issues in within the bcci you know the the reason they've had all these tussles with the supreme court have been because of uh, you know some of the extremely unethical and 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 dubious damaging behavior from a whole raft of people over a long period of time so that's there's there's been this tussle the last few years with the Supreme Court to see whether it will actually be addressed, whether anything will actually be done, and and that remains open to questions. So, but I suppose it was um, a, a sound political move on his part to make sure that he didn't get Coley offside. Although it, it is kind of bizarre that deference, given that you know that that the Indian team captain is the most important man in cricket. You you don't. You couldn't say that about Tim Payne, put it that way. Mm. You, you don't get the sense that an Australian, an Australian cricket captain's voice is respected and listened to, but they don't make the decisions, they don't set the agendas, they don't pick the teams, they, d- they don't decide where the matches are played. So that separation of powers really doesn't exist in Indian cricket. Speaking of power, moving to Bangladesh, there's been a, a, a test of strength this week uh, from the players. Uh, they struck. They said they wouldn't play any further first-class games. They wouldn't tour India. I think it's next month they're scheduled to go there until they had a series of demands met, which included sacking um, their welfare uh, organisation, which is essentially their players' organisation, players' association, who they felt weren't doing what was in their interest. Yep. Um, they were filthy. It's a bit of a sham, anyway. There are Bangladesh cricket board employees who are on that right, part yeah. of that organisation. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, yeah, not, yeah. It's, it's not a real union. No, that, that's right. So, I mean, the fact that the, the Bangladesh Premier League franchises have been dismantled, which means, I think, as I understand, that local players won't be able to earn as much as foreign players this year. That was a bugbear. Shakib Al Hassan um, was the man fronting the cameras on behalf of the players. So, solid there with Shakib. Basically, they were able to get all of their um, demands met, so the, the strike is over. It only took two days. So um, next time you uh, next time you're in the middle of an industrial dispute, uh, rope in the world's best all rounder to come in and do your negotiations for you. You might be able to wrap it up nice and quickly and get all your demands met too. So <laughs> he can be a freelance T20 player and a freelance uh, shop steward. Uh, Shakib, yeah, is there anything you the can't do? Yeah, Dave last time. Yeah, Shakib this time. I love that. I think that's magnificent. So good on well under the Bangladesh players. We've sp- we invested a lot of energy during the World Cup on the show, on the Daily Show talking about the the plight of the Bangladesh uh, team, and uh, I'm glad they've had a, a win over their board there. Um, as we sort of get towards the back end of Section One, the hundred draft was on Sunday, Jeff. We're not going to go chapter and verse on that because we did a lot on the hundred last week, but there's lots of Australians who will feature in the first round. Stark went to Cardiff, as did Smith. Maxwell's to Lords with Shane Warne. Uh, David Warner's got to go to Southampton. 
poor bastard. Uh, Darcy Shorts playing for Nottingham, Trent Bridge, uh, the Trent Rockets. Uh, Aaron Finch is uh, going to be a Northern Supercharger, which um, which uh, prompted a reasonably ridiculous exchange with Ben Stokes and myself the other night, where I was <laughs> I made some comment like um, that when interviewing him that, that Aaron Finch is one of the big one of the biggest bashers in all the game, and um, Stokes. Um, so in the northeast, to be a big basher must to be to be a big wanker, uh, and and he doubled over laughing, uh, and we had to stop the interview. So that was um, so that's uh, the, one of the biggest bashers in the game. Uh, Aaron Finch is um, off to uh, off to Leeds in that group, and then there's Adam Zampa playing for Birmingham, Dan Christian playing for Manchester in Simon Cadditch's side. I'm not sure. Um, whether I've missed any of the Aussies there, but the point here is, is that next year the uh, hundred. Have you, I missed someone? You've missed Nate. You've missed Nathan Remington. Nathan Remington. I didn't. Darren even... Lehman. Darren Lehman's side has picked up Rimo. Well, there you go. To He's... go around again. I, I'm not sure how. I'm not sure when. I'm not sure when. But he was listed. He was on the. He was on the. Um, yeah. The, the the which team is it that that Lehman's, Lehman's got Northern Superchargers. Yeah. Yeah. He's got the. He's uh, got the Superchargers. Yeah. Yeah. Nathan Nathan Remington, who I last remember bowling in the Big Bash about. I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe. Um, and I reckon he was probably... Was he playing for the Brisbane Heat? I can't even remember. It was too long ago. Um, but it probably was a Lehman team. Anyway, he's... Um He's, he's, he's got a gig. Well, I mean, it says a bit. Of, who who coaches trust has we, we've we've learned this in the Wigmore Wild book. You know, if you trust a player or if you know a player, you're more likely to pick him up in in the franchise system. And, and that could be said for Shane Warne. It looked as though Warne just picked players that he'd heard of before, which is good. Um, he had Dimi Mascarenas next to him, um, uh, which meant the mural was getting back together. Those who aren't familiar with the Shane Warne mural. Um, uh, Dimitri Mascarenas, who yep. of course is a former international for England, lovely fella, a coach in the Australian. Imagine, that, imagine, imagine Shane Warne goes, oh, with pick three, I'm going to take Aaron Hamill. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take Jason Warne, Aaron Hamill and uh, and Glenn Robbins. <laughs> and, and and those two poker-playing brothers, the Hadjams. The Hadjams uh, with, brothers. With five and six. We, we, did wonder whether, we did wonder whether Michael Clark might get picked up, um, by, but Michael might have made a comeback for the London spirit. Uh, yeah, and Jason Warne was our other, our other wildcard prediction, but didn't, didn't quite get over the line. But no, he did He did pick Maxi in the, the right first person, round. If the right person <laughs> asked the question, I would consider my answer. <laughs> um, Simon Kaddish took a, a relatively unorthodox approach to his first two rounds of selections. He, he picked up um, three of the four players on the top two bands were without a reserve price, which means nothing, of course, because the reserve is simply what the player managers negotiated beforehand in terms of their salary. But still, it was he was the one guy to kind of buck with the trend of picking the high-profile players up front. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for them next year at Old Trafford. Yeah. Um, of course, the fact the draft was on this week meant there was, um, there was a whole truckload of criticism in the Oppose the 100 um, campaign, which we sort of touched on a couple of weeks ago has been um, been uh, vocal. Uh, there was a committee hearing yesterday where they wore their opposed the hundred polo shirts to the to the uh, the the parliamentary committee hearing and were asked to remove that'll them. That'll do or, it. Asked to remove them or to leave. So so that continues to be a big talking point over here. But to be fair, I think the I don't know if you had a chance to watch any of the the television coverage, but it was really well done on Sunday. It probably went too long as drafts tend to do, um, but the actual mechanics of the night as, as someone jokes me a colleague jokes me they should just let Sky Sports run everything like when Sky Cricket run anything it's a slick smooth production maybe they should have ran the 100 from the get go rather than the, rather than the ECB and whoever the, the ECB commissioned to um, to look after it for the first 18 months when it seemed to be 
um, stumble after stumble. But yeah, the draft went well. So uh, that is the last we'll probably hear of the 100 for about nine months when they start preparing to play it next July. Was it as interesting as Andrew Demetrio reading the Brownlow votes? <laughs> <laughs> was Mark was Draga, it that good? Mark Draga, Mark Draga, Dragasevich. Yeah, no, it wasn't quite, um, wasn't quite Demetrio. It wasn't quite Gomez on Brownlow night, but you know. It was it was worth being there for. It was a, it was a late night in in deep West London, but I'm I'm glad we I'm glad we made it out there and were able to um, you know see it all take place because it was a pretty significant night considering the the all all the different storylines uh, threading around this competition at the moment. Oh well, it's going to be funny, interesting. I don't know. It's going to be something. There's an adjective that is what it's going to be. Yep. Um, that's probably enough from us for the first half. We've got so. to have a chat to Tanya Aldred, who is joining us to talk about the climate change reports that have been uh, that have been uh, circulated through the cricket world and the um, difficulty in getting any meaningful action going on that front. Um, obviously, climate change is a massive topic worldwide at the moment as it should be and it's uh, particularly relevant to cricket in a whole range of really specific ways and let's get into talking about that i'm barney douglas director of the edge you're listening to the final word with adam and jeff what a show okay we lied before we get to part two we need to talk Briefly and importantly to you about satellite phone technology, it is available from a website called Sat Phone Shop. Isn't that a nice and easy way to remember things? The shop where you buy sat phones. And I know that you, Adam, are very excited about the, uh, the potential for you in your life about being able to call people from anywhere in the world on a satellite phone. Yeah, we, well, we, we, we spent some time um, talking then about the ability to catch someone on the phone. I mean, Jeff, I've, I've struggled, it must be said, to get you on the phone over the years we've known each other. You're about a one in 10, probably one in 15, you answer my calls. I reckon with the sat phone, there might be a way to like attach some sort of, attach some sort of, buzzer on your body which mm-hmm. means that you know okay. that you, you have to there, there's got to be some sort of technology that can be woven through people are going to hear this and yep. think you're just ghosting me and you probably are but the the ability for no no I'm just I genuinely forget to turn the ringer on for like I reckon it's on maybe one day in 14 <laughs> um, so yeah so I ma- just maybe look at ma- who's called me and then ring him back Maybe Simon Wallace can help with the sat phone shop to find some mechanism that will, will, will use the mm. technology that can can get us connected on the phone more readily. Um, that would excite me. Like, um, like in a restaurant, like where you get the you the know, buzzer, you get the little buzzy thing where all the lights go on. You know, yeah. I mean, in theory, that's what a phone should be, but it's it's not. No, well, that's right. Technically, that's what the vibrate function should do as well. But you know. It, maybe it doesn't. But you don't know. But, but that's like, you know, if you've ordered the chips or whatever and you're expecting it to go off, but, but a phone call is, is a snack that I haven't ordered. You know, it's an audio <laughs> snack for my ears, but I, I don't know what's and coming. And you eat when you bloody want. Just comes <laughs> anyway, um, do, you know what, do you know what else is up on, on satphoneshop.com at the moment that you can buy, which is, which is new, new product? SPS Road Flares. You can buy a six-pack of these mother truckers if you are a mother <laughs> and a trucker. What's a road and, flare? Uh, a road flare is like, well, it's not an actual flare that you set on fire, sadly. Because, not taking it to the know, football. No, no, not taking it to the NSL. (laughs) Not getting down to a Western Sydney Wanderers game. I was thinking Uh, more the glory days of watching South Melbourne down there at uh, Bob Jane. Oh, great times. 
I was I was thinking of um, the the days when I was thinking of being at school and and sitting through a compulsory chapel service when somebody set off a um, an orange smoke flare in the air conditioning vent behind the priest's pulpit um, mid sermon. And, and evacuated the entire joint. Um, and I, I was, funnily enough, I was the first suspect called in the next day and, and grilled at some length. But um, as I explained at the time, it couldn't have been me because I was, uh, you know, I was, I was in the, sitting in the service. I was innocent, blameless as could be, had nothing to do with it, didn't know anything about it to this day. And I still maintain that position. Okay. <clears throat> Um, nonetheless, these, these, these aren't fire road flares. These are like, um, they're, they're super bright LEDs and they have all these uh, bright amber and white lights in them and you can put them on a stand on the road. So if you have a breakdown on a dark road in the middle of the night, you can pop a couple of these out there and they will flash bright signals so that nobody coming around the bend crashes into you. Um, and, and that is a, a pretty bloody useful thing to have if you oh, don't yeah. want to get totaled at the side of a mountain road. So while you're calling someone on your sat phone, you know, ringing up bloody Bob Jane Tmart or whoever it is who's, who's going to come and sort you out, <laughs> you can you can pop your, your branded sat phone shop road flares out on the road um, and, and be perfectly safe. Or you can just take them to a rave. If you if you and Steve O'Keefe are having a night out, you can light up the uh, SPS road flares in the sat phone shop branded bag. They've got 15 LEDs and they have nine light modes. So you and Sock can just pop those on in all kinds of different flashing configurations um, and rave hard, baby. And pop on Darude Sandstorm, you, me, Steve O'Keefe, some sat phone shop flares, what could possibly go wrong? Maybe we'll get them along. We've been saying for our live shows, which are in, which we've neglected to mention so far on the show, we're probably 45 minutes in and not mention you can buy tickets at finalwordcricket.com to see us in Melbourne on the 18th of November and Adelaide on the 27th of November. We have said we want to include a sat phone shop element to that, so maybe it's the flares... Mm-hmm. Maybe it won't be the phone yeah. as such. We'll bring the flares with us. In fact, let's do yeah. that. Yeah, let's, let's we'll, walk we'll in, in the dark. Walk in in the dark with a couple of sat phone shop flares. If you ever want a proof that we're not commercially minded, we're not in this for, for the cold, hard cash, it's the fact that we didn't mention that we have live shows for like an hour of our <laughs> actual show. But we do. We've sold over, well over 100 tickets for the Melbourne show by now, which is crazy and, and amazing. Um, so there aren't that many left. So get onto it if you want to come to the Melbourne gig. Um, finalwordcricket.com. That's got all the links. Also for the Adelaide show as well, which is going to be a lot of fun at the Ambassador Hotel. So November 18 for the Melbourne show, November 27th for Adelaide. But... That's advertising a totally different thing. Go and get a sat phone. Why not? Get into it. It's, uh, you know, the the world's going to end as we're about to find out in the next part of this show. So satphoneshop.com, sort yourself out and uh, you will be able to call people from all around the world. Now, let's chat to Tanya Aldrin. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, and we're thrilled to have with us today on the show an accomplished, esteemed member of the press box here in the UK, but for our purposes today, probably the, the leading cricket writer on climate change, and there's been a report released in the last couple of weeks called Hit for Six, which we'll come to in a moment, but um, Tanya Aldred, welcome to The Final Word, and, and just to begin, if you can give us a bit of a sense of what brought you to this topic, because a couple of years ago, you launched a, a new Twitter account, the next test, and, and wrote a couple of pieces, and, and we're making the point that 
we're just not talking about this. Yeah, oh, hi, Adam. Hi. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, what, what brought me to it? Well, I guess I'd always kind of been interested in environmental stuff, issues from since I was a kid. And, um, you know, being one of those people who signs petitions and quietly does stuff without ever doing any anything sort of loud or rocking the boat and um i went to a t20 game once and um at the end i think it was at old trafford actually and at the end i would, i looked around and just there was trash everywhere you know there were the empty um plastic cups there were those clappy sticks the foam hands you know chucked away bits of food and i was like and i sort of struck me and i was thinking what what has cricket become that a game of sport produces so much trash mm. and that was just kind of that was my starting point for thinking about how does sport interact with the environment um and then from then i met a guy called russell seymour who's the sustainability manager at lords and he is the uh, big boss guy of something called a uh, basis which is um, the British Associ Association for Sustainability in Sport. And I went along to one of their conferences and it was a mix of sort of uh, terrifying and um, uh, hopeful because you kind of saw where we were in, in um, terms of the climate emergency, but also saw the th amazing things that people were doing within sport to try and reduce the sports carbon footprint. And there was someone there from Surface Against Sewage, and it struck me that no one was doing the same thing for cricket, even though cricket, because of uh, where the, the main countries who play, who play it are located on the globe, they're actually at the forefront of the climate emergency right now. And I kind of looked around to see if anyone was writing about it, and they weren't. Mm. And I sort of came to the conclusion that actually, I better pull my finger out and write about it. And that's where I started the next test purely as a means um, of trying to raise the issues and I try and put something on there every day either something that I've done or something that I've found out on social media so it, it becomes a bit of a, uh, a not a journal of record that sounds that's too grand but it, it, it you can flick through the feed and find stuff that you're interested in basically a mixture between hopeful and terrifying is it's also how i describe my romantic life but um, <laughs> it, it's it's nice that it's got an application more broadly I, I thought when i knew we were going to have this conversation i thought the elephant in the room that adam and i should address up front is we both fly around the world extensively covering cricket you know we've done a a frankly horrific amount of air miles and obviously when you're having conversations about environmental impacts and so on you, you've got to take your own um, contribution to that into account otherwise you're hypocrites but nonetheless that's not the most important part of the discussion so I think we'll we'll come to that later in the piece but that's not really what has to be done up front but I thought we should flag it up front at least <laughs> yeah so sure that, you know, sure um, the, the flame warriors don't get onto us about that well you know oh well you have traveled in a car so how can you want the world to be a better place <laughs> But it seems like there's been a new injection of momentum into the movement to address climate change in the last few months, largely thanks to the climate strikes and so on. More governments are getting on board. Others are still very intransigent. But what's your assessment? Like, where do you think we're at 
globally um, in, in terms of actually addressing the problem versus just kicking it down the road? Well, like you say, there's sort of, particularly in the UK over the last year, there have been two, two movements that have got people on the streets. One's Brexit and the other one is climate, either through the, the school strikes or Extinction Rebellion. And the UK's declared a climate emergency, but then goes on to do things as you know, the government then goes on to do things that completely ignore the fact that there's a climate emergency. Um, I think we're probably moving in the right direction, but very, very slowly and not fast enough. Um, I'm not a scientist. I should say that from the very beginning. So my, I'm not coming at this issue from a sort of um, yeah scientific background, more merely merely from someone who's kind of scared, really. Talking of hypocrisy, I've had three children, so that's kind of would automatically put me in a, mm. a box that says, you know, you've done the wrong thing. But I look at my children's lives and I kind of look 10 years on, 20 years on, and I think, God, what, what are they going to, what are they going to inherit? Even though they live in the UK, which is by its location quite protected compared to some other places in the world. Um, yeah, I'm. <sighs> I don't know. I don't feel particularly optimistic. You wonder what more has to happen in order for governments to decide that this is the most pressing thing on their inbox. People say the right things, but then you seem to go round and round in circles. So I don't know. I mean, you guys have worked, or Adam, I know you have, I don't know about Jeff, but worked in, in politics for much more than I have. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess coming to this issue from a... Uh, a global perspective or from the uh, from from a governmental angle uh, yeah having seen firsthand the the erosion of sophisticated climate emissions carbon emissions policies rather uh, over the last 10 to 12 years in australia it, it's hard to watch more than 10 to 12 years really but as far as the the ongoing struggle australia have been consistently rated as the highest per capita emitter and we've been considered a bit of an international joke on this topic for a long time and how close we got to having a, a, a sustained uh, policy that would have lasted and endured and to think where we are now. I mean, I know this is, is, is political and it's it, it won't always please everyone going down this path, but um, yeah, I, I feel as though there is some added momentum that you discussed a minute ago, Jeff, but there's obviously a long way to go. I guess the reason, Tanya, I wanted to, to talk to you about it, though, in the cricket sphere is that and I, I unnecessarily caveated you when, when, when leading into this saying you're probably the foremost you absolutely are the foremost writer on this topic because there have been um, there have for the last two years in the Wisdom Almanac and we talked to Lawrence Booth about this when the book came out this year there has been a dedicated section towards the environment and that kind of I guess uh, evolved out of where your uh, where your interest had been the previous year looking into this and, and, and writing about it quite a lot. And I guess having a, a chapter dedicated to it in the Bible of cricket really gives it a fair degree of authority. And I, I suppose that the response you got from test playing boards last year was an underwhelming one. Yeah, a very underwhelming one. So I think New Zealand, God, you, I, I'm pretty sure when New Zealand, the only team, the only country that got back to me, I think the ECB vaguely did but most people completely ignored me oh no West Indies got back yep yeah um, you, you had three I think yeah um, West Indies got back and, and um, yeah talked sort of brutally about the problems that they have um, and said yes it would be very nice if the ICC were to do something New Zealand got back and said uh, haven't really got anything to say you had England talking Vaguely about a few things, a few cricket grounds 
independently have gone renewable, you know, in terms of their electricity usage and so on, and there have been some um, programs put in place to reduce plastic waste and so on, although there's still an awful lot of it going around, particularly at the World Cup, under the ICC auspices, they had their own sponsors, so there was a lot of bottled water and all that kind of stuff still still ongoing. Um, But yeah, it it was interesting, the New Zealand response to just say, we don't have a policy and we probably should have one, but that's going to require the involvement of government and, you know, a sort of cross-party approach. So they were basically saying someone else needs to tell us what to do and then we'll do it. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think the more central you make, the higher up you make these decisions, the easier it is. It's always much more difficult for someone on the ground, for like the volunteer at a club to start doing something because they're already hard pressed and you know they're trying to get a team together or they're trying to get the mower going or whatever it is um and actually before i spoke to you i thought god i better just check if the icc have got anything on their website because i keep looking intermittently and to see if they mention climate change i did have a look and they mention anti-racism anti-corruption doping and then they mentioned cricket for good so sort of um, ensuring positive social change through cricket and they have a link with UNICEF and then they talk about cricket being a vehicle that can be used to raise awareness of issues that might otherwise garner little or no publicity and I think they've talked about things like uh, female genital mutilation and, and kind of things like that which are obviously excellent and I've got to say that the ECB have certainly been transformative in their attitude to women's cricket and to homophobia and sort of so cricket has become more aware of its broader social responsibility but for some reason climate change just isn't there it's not it's not in the brains of the people who are making the big decisions even though it's already affecting cricket and and cricketers you know it should be something that the uh, PCA or the various unions around the world are, are getting their teeth into, but it just doesn't seem to be breaking through. And I, I don't, I don't really know why. Perhaps because it, it does make cricket um, ask fundamental questions about itself and whether it can continue to grow and continue to proliferate around the world and have bigger tournaments and bigger flights and I don't know if that's the thing that stops it asking itself these fundamental questions. The Game Changer report last year felt like that was a pretty big sort of flag to be uh, planted in the ground where the Climate Coalition said in a quote of all the major pitch sports cricket will be the hardest hit by climate change you know uh, reflecting on the UN's targets the, the the Paris Agreement and so forth and going into where cricket um, could stand to be at significant risk and I guess that's where Hit for Six is so good because it doesn't just talk about climate change as far as the, the broader damage that it will cause around the world around the planet um, it, it really focuses and drills down on, on our game um, the participants of it uh, the, the places we play it, uh, even the turf we play it on, uh, and and the danger that, that players are, are under as well. And then it goes through in each individual country, each major test playing nation, how climate change is already affecting the way that we that we experience cricket, both as participants, as players, or or, 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 or people viewing it in the grandstands and, and so on. So, I mean, you mentioned Richard Seymour before at the MCC, their sustainability manager. He's off the top, you know, saying very clearly that to say that climate change is a problem we will need to deal with down the track is missing the point because we're, we've already started experiencing the effects of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a, I thought it was a fantastic report. It was really accessible 
table. Um, it was very clear, like you say, it, it sort of drilled down on the data very clearly and divided the uh, yeah the report was divided into the different nations. And when it talked about um, did they, there's a scientist at the University of Portsmouth talking yep. about um, they they focused a lot on heat in this particular issue, and it was talking about when an international batsman is running between the wickets it's equivalent to sort of shuttle runs basically between the wickets in in a full cricket kit including a helmet and once the temperature gets beyond a certain point um the body can no, is it, the body can no longer sweat um, yeah it, it runs out of options at 35 degrees of, uh, you know when, when you're wearing the full kit the sweat the body starts running out of the things it can do to mitigate that to me it seemed like that huge amount of focus on player welfare is probably useful to get the point across but it also kind of missed the point in a way because if you're talking about peaking temperatures and you know we've, we've all uh, gone out and played in 40 plus days and it's horrific and you don't want to do it but there are only so many of those days in in places like Australia in a given summer but if you look at cricket more broadly obviously one of the biggest things is drought and water supplies if you you can't play cricket without a pitch you can't grow grass without water and if you're in places like the northern parts of you know of Australia where they're going through terrible droughts at the moment keeping a cricket pitch alive isn't a priority and then you look at the other side of the of that climate spectrum when you're looking at massive rainfall or floods or um, hurricanes, violent storms which are being made worse by rising sea temperatures and particularly in the Caribbean, that's where they've mm. suffered the brunt of that for the most part. So there's this massive potential for systemic destruction of the, the conditions in which cricket can be played that will partly make it impossible to do. Adam and I were in Cape Town last year when they were um, at the really far end of that incredibly difficult drought that they had oh, yeah. and the only reason they were able to keep Newlands viable as a cricket ground was because it had its own bore water supply oh, really? which wasn't really fit for drinking but they were able to um, keep the, the ground alive but a lot of the most of the grounds in South Africa at that point had been let go because they you know around that area because they couldn't afford the, um, the water to uh, to water those grounds so there's this there's an existential threat to cricket as a game in its own right rather than just worrying about the, the risk of players which might be more easily mitigated yeah right i think i might be wrong but i think the report that came out before which was the game change report kind of touched on more general existential threats so i don't know but i suppose they kind of tried to drill on on something to make it more uh i don't know hard hitting for people perhaps but you're like right. You there is litigate one point to make it easier to get that point across. Yeah, I, I guess. Um, I mean, you're right because I, I saw something recently saying that there are sort of it was a top ten um, of countries uh, at the highest risk of experiencing multiple climate hazards, and of the top ten, three of those countries are the ma uh, major cricket playing countries. Mm. So you had Bang Bangladesh, India, and Pakistan. There's fundamental problems and cricket cricket is going to be as you say dropping further and further down the list of priorities and if you've got a choice of um using water to 
give people drinking water or watering your pitch. It's, you know, there's no option. Yeah, that's they right. Just, the relationship with water, especially in the politics around water. I mean, Jeff, we saw a little bit of that last year in South Africa uh, when we were reaching that sort of dystopian day zero, which thankfully we, we never got to. But yeah, needing bore water, they couldn't... Uh, you know, th- th- this is an ongoing conversation. I don't think it's really either or, though, as far as the, 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 the existential crisis as it relates to the player welfare side of things. Because, I mean, it, it, we're going to have fewer days of cricket due to droughts, heat waves, storms. It's kind of the, the perfect storm, if you like, as far as the conditions being changed. I know in something you wrote, Tanya, um, with Russell Seymour, um, referencing commentary around England, for example, you said that the effects of climate change won't be felt as keenly in this part of the world. And whilst that's true to an extent, uh, the, the idea that this year we had a, a day where England played Ireland and it was 38 degrees, it's just a different type of cricketing climate. So the idea, I think you wrote, uh, the English green seamer might might be gone in, in a decade from now or longer is if the weather continues to evolve the way that it has. If you look at the example of the summer of 2018 here and a couple of notable examples in in. 2019. Look, that's all, I think, quite um, quite helpful, I think, to sort of shine the light on, on where this this is so that people will pay greater attention. And then you see someone like Shane Warne come out. And I've got to say, Tanya, you probably haven't sort of followed Shane Warne's commentary on climate change. There hasn't been a lot of it, but he did do an interview with a, with a conservative commentator in one of the tabloids a couple of years ago, a, a staunch anti-climate change um, conservative commentator, I should add, and, and warned the same neither here nor there about the challenge of climate change in that experience. And then he showed a fair degree of contrition for that in these comments he made, which you wrote up um, after the report was released. I know he's a member of the MCC Cricket Committee these days, and I'm sure when he was briefed on the report, he would have had this uh, brought to his attention in full. But as he says here, at times at the past, it's been hard to know who to believe. But I think we all have to admit that climate change is a huge issue. Scientists with proven facts are telling us things we can't dispute about rising temperatures and rising sea levels. And then he goes on to talk about all the impacts on cricket itself. But someone like Shane Warne, I mean, I doubt Shane Warne would have been brought out to talk about this if not for the report, if not for the relationship to cricket. Someone high profile who is in the broader public conversation, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, we talk talk about Shane Watt a lot on this show for that matter um, as we all do in the cricketing world he's hard to avoid so uh, yeah I think that's where the, the real benefits are being experienced at the moment and you're writing as well Tanya that that now we are kind of playing catch up but we're doing it quite quickly yeah well it was I, th- I was so pleased to speak to Shane Warne because I kind of had this tip off that he'd been not tip off sounds too dramatic but someone had said who was in that um, uh, uh, cricket committee um, the, the Game Changer report, I think, had been presented to the Cricket Committee um, of the yep. MCC and that he'd been com- fascinated by it and asked loads of questions um, and had obviously thought, you know, it, it hit him quite deeply. And then I thought it was quite brave of him to speak out because obviously he will, he he would know that he would get stick for, for speaking out because of his lifestyle he probably does jet around all over the place and go to poker tournaments and go and commentate on this and that um but you know i'm a vegetarian but you know vegetarians uh the sort of usual suspects preaching about climate change isn't going to be the big change it's people like shane warne people like well lewis hamilton spoke about it the other day people who are raising their head above above the pulpit who are unexpected that I think probably will uh, make different people talk about it. So casting forward, um, Tanya, there are a a series of recommendations listed in the report. So, I mean, I, I, I... 
I take your point before uh, about it feeling a bit overwhelming when you get your sort of head stuck into data like this and it feels like, you know, this inevitability that, that cricket's going to um, cop it in the neck as a consequence of, of, uh, of dramatic climate change. But as you say, like there, there are steps that, that can be taken. And on the, I guess, the cricketing side, the, the, the welfare side, there's heat rules which already now apply in Australia. I know they were applied to the... Um, under-15s national championship, I think it was last season, where they cut that to 30 overs instead of 50 overs because the, the temperature was too high. And, and you know, there, there's there's um, obviously the, the protracted risk um, in South Africa with, with water politics, but that's in the report as well, talking about the, the need to, to deal with that uh, from a cricket perspective, the emissions mitigation measures that have been taken at Lords already with panels on the roofs there. They're, I think they're 100% renewable now, Lords, if it serves me correctly, yep, and at the Oval... At the Oval, of course, they've got that fantastic initiative. Yeah, Edge Baston too, right? I know at the Oval with um, with uh, with with their um, non what single use plastics now a thing of the past at that ground. So um, then that leadership was taken uh, by the Surrey County Cricket Club. So congratulations to them. And they fundamentally what they are asking for in the report is the ICC to set up a global climate change disaster fund, which is quite a dramatic thing for them to do and a big step forward. But it, it feels like that's where this momentum is moving because you can easily see all the evidence points towards this getting worse before it gets better. So we need to prepare accordingly. Yeah, I agree. And and I'd like to see member states lobbying the ICC for that. I I don't know whether it's going to... There doesn't seem to be much action centrally. They did say that they were going to have a report coming out this year, but I've not seen any evidence of a report coming out this year. So I don't know quite what's happening there. Um... But yeah, amazing. Um, have a have a disaster fund. Have central leadership provide money for people to do that. I mean, it's all right to ask. So obviously, Lords and the Oval in particular have done amazing things. You know, they should be applauded for that. But then you also have to say those are the grounds with more money, so mm-hmm. they're more able to invest. So if you're asking people to to be more sustainable then I think there has to be some kind of funding from the centre that is going to be passed down so I'd like to see as well as money for disasters which you hope won't happen but probably will you want the money for people to invest to try and mitigate disaster and then to reduce cricket's own carbon footprint yeah, more than having a disaster fund, which um, basically concedes that the disasters will yeah. take place. <laughs> it, it might be better to have mitigation funds and to to be pushing organisations like the ICC to be using their clout to lobby in the countries that they operate in to 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 increase movement on these issues and speed it up. Because you know the key thing is that time's pretty short on this. It, it feels like things are starting to move, but they're starting to move in a pretty long-term way, and we don't have the long-term, you know. No, that's right. Ten years Less than or a so. decade. To, yeah. Mm. And, and that's to avert the most disastrous um, outcomes. That's, you know, we're already having the outcomes. The, the, the effects are already being felt. We've had, what, like eight, eight of the ten hottest years in record on record in Australia in the last sort of 12 or 13 years. So, sorry, eight, eight of... I think That's it's right, eight yeah. of the hottest years since '05. I think is the number. So, the you know the the denial is ridiculous because it's clearly it's already being proved that the effects are taking place. That's what has to be addressed. Um, and and rather than having disaster relief, we need we need those organisations to take political action because cricket 
boards are making a huge amount of money out of the sport and some of what they're making out of the sport has to be put back into offsetting the, the damage that the sport's doing. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm, re- I'm curious to know about Australia because obviously it really is at the forefront of, of the climate crisis. Has Cricket Australia, other than the heat report, talked about climate change at all? Not that we're aware of. A couple of the grounds have um, independently done a bit of work on their own. Um, I think, you know, the MCG's got a big recycling focus and so on, but those are all relatively small um, gestures towards the problem. But as far as I'm aware, Cricket Australia haven't done anything specific about climate change. They've been Mm. very good on sort of social progress issues, inclusion and and diversity and so on, but climate really hasn't been addressed. And, you know, frankly, as as a country, Australia is going to be pretty fucked when yeah. <laughs> the full effects of things come in in, in another 30 or 40 years. We're, we're already not in great shape now with the droughts and, and cyclones and so on that we get on a regular basis. Yeah, it, it, it's tough, isn't it? Because if, you, if you're Cricket Australia, and, you know, this hasn't been on Broadway really until the last few years, this conversation about cricket and climate change specifically, I mean, I don't mean climate change more generally, but when there has been a lack of na- national leadership for a, a fairly long period of time now and when the issue hasn't been talked about anywhere near as much as it was during the drought of 2007. It's a long time ago since climate change was front and centre. And when it has been, it's often been reduced to a, a cost discussion rather than an investment discussion and and it's deteriorated accordingly. So um, with the discourse so damaged around carbon emissions policy in the country, I think that that might have affected the willingness for organisations to get on the front foot. But again, reports like this and hopefully conversations that we're having today, even though they're, they're a bit stop-start in terms of where we're getting to because there's so many different touch points, but it can draw draw our attention or more people's attention to the fact that, yeah, our sport is vulnerable. Uh, Tanya Aldred, uh, thank you so much for um, doing all the work you are on this. Uh, the next test is the Twitter account. Um, the Wisdom Almanac is where you're doing your annual uh, sort of sum up, and that's obviously worth buying anyway but try and get a hold of um, what you wrote about in Wisdom this year. You're regularly contributing to The Guardian uh, on this topic uh, and, and the, uh, the Hit for Six report is available. We'll tweet it out from our accounts as well. So, uh, Tanya, keep fighting the, the good fight on this one and, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for being part of this. No, oh, thanks, guys. Good luck. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Our thanks to Tanya Aldred for making the time to chat to us about climate change and its impact on cricket and its likely projected impact on cricket into the future as well. A really important conversation that I think we should keep pushing with the those holding the reins of power of the game around the world, Adam. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm sort of mindful that it, it can be interpreted that we're being preachy or 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 worse and look I, look I appreciate that criticism and that's not completely unreasonable but that's not what we're trying to do we're just trying to use the platform we have here to elevate a topic which no one's talking about so I know that conversation went in a few different directions but if anything the fact that now and I'm 
repeating myself from that longer conversation, but now it's sort of on people's radar and it wasn't before. Well, that's a triumph and that's in no small part due to the work that Tanya's done and now these reports have been written and the fact that someone like Shane Warne's engaged and we know the, the damage that it will do to both the, the game from a sort of holistic perspective and also the players that are involved in it. So it's credit to those who have been fighting this fight and, yeah, we'll, we'll periodically check in on the final word and, and we'll, yeah, we'll make sure that we, we keep a, a close eye on it in, in much the same way that we have with the, the, the betting sponsorship with, um, with Cricket Australia, which we've kept a pretty close eye on in the last year or so and returned to time and again. I, I see we'll probably do a similar thing with climate change. We'll do our best with that anyway. And uh, we're not going to do Nerd Pledge this week because we're trying to avoid doing another two-hour episode. But um, <laughs> Nerd Pledge, the game that we play with our listeners and supporters on the Patreon page, we should be able to do a decent slab of that in the next episode. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, you go to patreon.com slash the final word and then that's the place where you can sign up to throw a few bucks into the tin to keep the podcast going but instead of making like a normal amount you put in a, a specific cricket amount like it might be 281 and that might be VVS Laxman at Eden Gardens the score that he made in 2001 something like that something that's specific Boutique. to you you put the, you put the number in and we try to figure it out. That's the game. It's pretty fun. A lot of people have played it. We've gone past the VVS Laxman 281 for supporters on the Patreon page, which is uh, amazing and, and warms our little hearts every day. So if you want to get involved and play the game, um, jump on that website and, uh, and and sign up and send us a number, send us a challenge, and we'll go through a chunk of those next week. Yeah, patrons, uh, great fun, uh, as is the review rating system. Terrible segue, I'll do it anyway. Oh, how much fun um, is how leaving much, your how review? Much, how much? Goody, how good he's leaving a review, as Scott Morrison might say. Um, the uh, it's good. Though. I really hate that he's ruined the phrase. How, how good, good is, I know. Because I know. It, it was a pretty, it was a pretty good phrase. But it's been, really it's been, it's it been ruined in a couple of places I can think of. But yes, yeah, Scott Morrison's definitely yeah. one of those. The the reviewing and rating system for reasons that I can't explain has a big effect on the amount of people who hear the show. So if you haven't jumped on and reviewed or rated the final word, and you can, and you can drop us five stars makes a big difference so if you can jump on and the itunes uh, uh portal i don't even know what it's called uh, the, the itunes app mm -hmm. um we, we'd be appreciative and again thanks for I those that it already... works on other apps as well who knows there, there yeah i don't really know so it's, many it's, podcast it, apps it is the wild we west keep isn't random it? <laughs> emails to our final word account being like you've been added to plodgner.com or something <laughs> and i'm like what what is this and why are you sending me a thing and anyway i don't know how podcasts work basically we just we just record this and then we stuff a floppy disk into the internet and then it, it, well, it comes up well one know. thing happens before then before the floppy disk goes in jay mueller and dc at bad producer productions put a lot of work into editing uh, these episodes for us we're eternally grateful for that um this will eventually be a vodcast as well we neglected to mention thank you to aria who's sorting that sorting that out for us as we progress through this next stage of the final word on YouTube so great stuff there from them uh, and you know last but not least thanks for everyone listening Tanya Aldred I mean I, I think we go through a lot of thank yous each week but it, it does take quite a bit to pull this together and, and we're really grateful for those who have been all part of it we are in, and you're going to be back with me soon Adam you're, I am I'm, I'm on a flight as it happens uh, this time next week so I'm flying uh, I think we've got two more shows to record two more interviews at the very least to record next week and one show to record by satellite and then we'll be sitting in the same room which will make for a, a more fluid experience probably when listening but we're doing our best by satellite for the time being via sat phone I not quite not, I, I hope there's not too much fluid involved but uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, 
couldn't rule it out. <laughs> can be very exciting sometimes, these reunions. <laughs> I'll tell you what. That's... Uh, probably where we should stop for this probably. week. Um, we're we're, we're going to close the webcams and, and go about our days. Um, thanks for listening once again to The Final Word, Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We'll see you next week.